I'm not saying like go and and try and climb something you know you have no idea how to do. But most of the time, if you're dreaming up um, some kind of adventure, you are ready and 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 you should just try and and do it <laughs> and just be ready to notice. You know, just be ready to turn around. Last April, mountaineers Pascal Marceau and Eva Capozola summited Canada's third tallest peak in a three-week Yukon expedition, becoming the first all-woman team to summit Mount Lucania. Standing 5,226 metres tall in the Yukon-St. Elias range, Lucania sees few climbers because of its remote location 65 kilometres north of Canada's highest peak, Mount Logan. Not only was the ascent unsupported, meaning they carried all the gear and supplies they needed for the entire three-week journey, but being a team of two meant each took on more labor and responsibility than members of a typical larger team. On today's episode, Eva and Pascal talk about their ascent, how they became mountaineers, and how you can get into mountaineering. Plus, they chat about upcoming projects, including Pascal's 1,200-kilometer journey by dog sled and ski from Greenland to Canada's high Arctic. I'm Megan Dallaire, this is Catch Me Outside, and without further delay, let's get to it. Yeah, I'm just so, so grateful that you're, you know, you made time for me. And, and how are you doing right now? We're doing great. I'm doing great. It's always fun to uh, reunite with Eva and and um, have an opportunity to just talk about um, Lucania and just. So I'm I'm thrilled to be here today. Thanks. Oh no problem. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much for having us. It's always exciting to be able to do things like this, especially when it's a new platform and something that you're launching. So thank you for having us as some of your first guests. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I was so thrilled when you got back to me so quickly and and uh, and we're available to to speak when I know you've got more adventures uh, in the pipeline. So yeah. And so, okay, so <laughs> is there a difference between mountaineering and alpinism? Because I I try I used both as I was writing my questions and and then I thought to look it up like what do you consider do you consider yourself mountaineers or alpinists? That's a good question and there is a difference. Um, I at least I perceive there's a difference for sure. Um, I would say I'm both, but I am more comfortable calling myself a mountaineer because it's more of what I've done. But I'm starting to dabble in alpinism, so um, I'm gonna let Eva explain the difference between the two because I know she's gonna do an amazing job of it. <laughs> Well, I'm also still in a learning process and I kind of feel like I'm an aspiring alpinist as well. I think that in the mountains, it's a lifelong process of education. And I think as our own knowledge and understanding of engaging in the mountains evolves and as equipment evolves, um, those term, the terms change as well and, and maybe adjust over time. Um, in my in my mind, in my understanding, um, alpinism, I think you are talking about more technical and more complex terrain. So that would probably require additional gear or you're in very, very vertical terrain, um, probably 
you know, dealing with roots and sections of roots that are truly mixed climbing. So using ice tools on rock and ice, placing gear oftentimes in very challenging situations. So um, that, you know, the consequences are high, the, the technical expertise required is high. Oftentimes in alpinism, we talk about like fast and light missions. So that maybe is day um, routes that you're doing in a day or multiple days. Um, but you are definitely maybe going to have a more refined rack of gear. Um, and then and then just trying to keep your, your loads light so that you can move in that more challenging terrain more nimbly. Um, and I think with Lucania, that was a mountaineering objective. We were in complex terrain. We were using technical equipment. We were um, this is some lingo here, but like pitching things out, which means we're roped up to each other. We're trying to create um, connections between ourselves and the terrain because it is steep. So if something, if one of us were to fall, we're able to stop or we're able to hold our weight and stay connected to the mountain. Um, but we we weren't in in conditions that required, you know, like using ice tools on rock um, as well as ice and you know, placing, placing pitons or, or placing cams. Yeah. Okay. So, so I guess a little bit more technical and a little bit more, I guess, like fast and light, uh, aggressive approach maybe for, for alpinism. Um, that, that's how I would define the difference. Yeah. Okay. I mean, although like not to sell short what you do at this point and what you have done, like independently, I, I mean, I think pretty much independently climbing the, the third highest, uh, peak in Canada together, right? Like, was this was this like a su- a supported thing? Like, did you have people come and and drop off like a cache uh, of supplies or something like that? Like, how did you manage that? So we were uh, completely independent. So um, a lot of it uh, required actually quite a lot of um, preparation and homework on logistics and route. Uh, so this is not a very commonly. It's not a it's not a well-known mountain. Probably a lot of people didn't even know about Lucania until maybe today when they (laughs) listen to this. Um, It kind of lies in the shadows of Mount Logan, which is uh, only, it's not that far away. And that is Canada's tallest peak. So a lot of people point their attention towards that, which was kind of the draw for us for Lucania is that it is kind of the, the lesser known um, mountain and, and there's not a lot of beta, beta meaning there's not a lot of information on what is the route, yeah. which way are we going to get there. Um, so so really, that's that's what appealed. Uh, it was, there's more of that sense of exploration. So um, throughout the whole journey, basically, even I had to make a lot of route decisions every day, every hour. It never stopped. Um, and, and that's what's engaging. That's what's um, really cool about <laughs> the, the route we chose. Um yeah, so yeah. That's that's so wild. And so I've backpacked for 10 days at a time. Um, you know, and that was fun and there was lots of liquid water to be had uh in lakes and streams to, you know, to refill and and there were also places where I could like resupply and I could drop off a food cache in town and and whatever. So yeah, like so you were gone for 21 days. Did you just carry 21 days worth of food or did you cache it or yeah, I don't know. How did you do that? Yeah, so we we had no option to set anything out beforehand, nor did we have an option for resupplying mid route. 
Um, so it's not like, you know, someone is flying in to meet us there, nothing like that. So we, that was part of the logistics that Pascal mentioned that we had to have in mind and be prepared for in advance. And so the nature of the route that we climbed, it naturally was broken up into sort of three different modes of travel. And that enabled us to manage the heavy weight, especially in the beginning, because we did need to have all, all of our food with us, all of our fuel with us. We did leave when the, when the plane dropped us off on the ice field, we did bury an additional cache where our quote base camp would be. And that would be where we would fly out of. But um, I just want to note there by base camp, it doesn't mean that that's a point that we would go out from and come back mm. to throughout the route. Our route was quite long and it was out. Um, it was, you know, out and back ultimately only just to be picked up and to be flown out. Oh. And so we did we did leave some food and fuel kind of as an emergency cash um, if we were going to be pinned down by bad weather and have to wait for our pick up to, to get out at the end. And so that was the only thing that we kind of left behind there at the point where we landed. And then from the outset, we had sleds that we could pull. And so that definitely helps with the weight. Um, so that's not all on our backs, but we were able to, to both pull quite heavy sleds. It was more than our body weight or about equal to our body weight in sleds. (laughs) And so that's all of our food and fuel. And then as Pascal said, you know, once we got moving, you know, we were kind of anticipating, okay, as we gain altitude, it will impact our appetite. And as we were moving, we were trying to gauge how much are we actually eating? How much do we want to make sure that we have as buffers? How do we want to have contingencies in case we do have weather days? So we're constantly kind of seeing like, what are we actually using? How much fuel are we going through? Giving ourselves that extra buffer and dropping, we were kind of actually shedding, trying to shed as much weight along the way, especially as we transitioned from leaving, having the sleds to then leaving the sleds and continuing only with packs. So we were trying to always make sure we had enough, but not carry more than we needed. And for liquids, um, we did melt snow. So the the main thing, a very important thing is having enough fuel. And that was something that we spent a lot of time calculating and preparing in advance and then continually reevaluating as we were moving. So to answer your question in the most straightforward way, we ca- it was just on us. It was something that we, yeah, we were carrying everything the whole time. And it was just a matter of um, trying to shed weight where we could. But um, this was a true mountaineering objective in that this was not a fast and light mission. We had heavy packs and that was a big, um, a big factor for us, especially when we got into steeper, more technical terrain, because, you know, climbing, climbing ice or climbing near vertical snow and ice is one thing when you're just moving your body, but it's another when you're in high winds and then you have this big pack on you that can feel like a sail. So those are all things that we wanted to be thinking about beforehand. And that definitely factored into our training and our preparation just so that we could trust our physicality and our bodies and just mentally be prepared for, for that extra load. Oh my God. Like you did this, I guess. Yeah. Basically like unsupported. Um, and, and well, not basically literally unsupported. And so, um, you said that there were three modes of travel. So you 
did you, I guess you started out on skis and sleds or what were the three kind of stages, I guess? Yeah, we, we started out on sleds and skis. So we, um, we had basically about three day of, uh, of skiing on a glacier. So there was some crevasse, uh, crevasses to navigate. Um, and we were moving, you know, pretty slow at that time because we're acclimatizing. So we got dropped off um, still at pretty high altitude. We were between nine and 10,000 feet. So you'll feel it right away when you land. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you push that is when you really start to feel sick. Um, so we took our time and, and acclimatized uh, with our big heavy loads, made our way up the glacier with the skis. And then, and then the, the second part um, is where we drop the skis. So the, the terrain gets a little more vertical such that the skis can't actually um, go up. Yeah. So the, I should mention that the skis are, are homemade what? <laughs> um, and they're specially designed for exactly what Eva and I were using them for, which is upward travel on a glacier. Um, they're not made to ski. Right. <laughs> they're not designed to carve some beautiful S turns. Um, I guess you don't they want are them to glide, to... right? <laughs> well, so they're made to, yeah, we have full length skins that stay on the ski at all times. And, and they're really there to help pull the heavy loads wow. and to span the crevasses because one of the key um, things to highlight in this in this climb was that Eva and I, we were just two. Um, and oftentimes projects of this magnitude or, or roots of this length and complexity would entail a, a bigger team, like maybe three or four. Um, so because of us being only two, any segment um, that has crevasses, which turned out to be almost the entire route, um, uh, becomes really critical because it's hard to do a crevasse rescue um, with just two people. Um, so our goal and all our attention and our training was really into making sure we simply just don't fall into the cracks. Yeah. So the skis were kind of um, a big element in, in that kind of safety. A little bridges on your feet (laughs) yeah exactly and so then the the second part uh is where the train gets more technical we we leave the skis behind um and then we continue but we can continue with the sled so anytime you have the sled it helps (laughs) Uh, because you are you are sharing the weight between your back and the sled so that was that was the second leg um there's a lot to say about that one it turned out to be actually a little more uh, challenging than we expected. We were faced with, um, we thought we would skirt around this this terrain feature that just looked like a really benign, friendly knoll. <laughs> um, and it turned out that it wasn't. We, we encountered um, some crevasses, some ridge crevasses, and then we were kind of cliffed out uh, and dead-ended on some pretty significant cornices that you just couldn't uh, really navigate. And then they were cliffing out. So we ended up having to go up and over the knoll and not around, which was all done uh, when pulling a sled, which added to the challenge. Oh my God. Sure. So when you say you thought this was a knoll, like looking at like topographical maps kind of thing, like you, you looked at it and looked at like the profile and you're like, okay, that looks pretty manageable. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and just to pop in there, um, this is another thing Pascal mentioned before, like we didn't have a lot of beta or information prior. This isn't a route that's climbed very often, hadn't been climbed in a long time. So we pulled as much as we could from various kinds of maps and and digital imaging. And so we had a good idea of what we were what we were expecting, but the reality in certain situations was very different. So yeah. 
it was a perfect example of you go in with a bit of a game plan and you go in with this set of expectations, but you have to be ready to adjust to what the reality is. And, and that's a combination of, you know, real-time weather, the reality of the conditions, and then also, you know, even a, even a really detailed map, there's still going to be features that just don't come up, you know, that you just don't see. And so this was one of those situations. And, and like Pascal said, we had to go up and over, which definitely also impacted our acclimatization. So we ended up having to sleep much higher one night than we were anticipating. We were trying to only go to gain like a thousand feet per day. And this doubled that. And so that night we both felt some impacts of altitude or when we woke up the next morning and then we went down, we were able to reduce our elevation the next day and kind of balance that Mm. out. So it definitely was a classic situation, which I think is always inevitable where you just kind of have to roll with the unexpected and adapt and, and um, just make those adjustments and pivots along the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not as if you, you know, like didn't, plan adequately or anything like that like you knew that there would be some gaps in in your in your data or in your beta or whatever and and so you just have like the skill set and the I guess the experience and and the flexibility to be able to adapt to that when it comes up and you did (laughs) and you got to the summit so yeah that's incredible and what what is the elevation of leukemia it's 17,200 and something feet. <laughs> and it's about, that's about 5,200 and something meters. Yeah. That's like decidedly high altitude. I actually had to look it up the, like yesterday. I was like, what is considered high altitude? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so wild. Um, yeah, and I, 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 I would be remiss to not kind of say there that again, it was just two of us. So I think that also, um, intensifies the interpersonal dynamics as well. You know, so everything is the decision-making. It's just the two of us, the, the um, dealing with the train, it's just the two of us. And so I'm just so grateful that we, I think our personalities naturally complemented each other really well, but I, I'm just so grateful to have had an experience where um, we just, our bond got stronger throughout the experience. And I think when you are in those situations, people handle uncertainty differently and people handle the unexpected differently. And we hadn't known each other very long before setting out on this endeavor. And I'm just, I think this will be an experience that I hold precious for my whole life because I've never been in some of those situations before with someone that I barely knew and and for us to just really learn from each other and support each other in such a phenomenal way I think it just made me so excited for taking on uh, more projects like this Uh, that's so incredible (laughs) it's very clear that this is not something you do by yourself you have to have I feel like at the very least a partner that you trust and and, you know, get along with. Um, so how did you end up uh, like doing these things together? I'm, I'm assuming that this wasn't the first time you had, you'd gone on some kind of an expedition together. It was. It, it was? was? <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah, yeah Pascal, you should take it. Yeah. Um, well, I guess in 2020, uh, 
we met through a mutual friend in Canmore. So um, we just kind of connected over coffee and we just had a really great meeting. And, and I think we kind of, it's one of those encounters where you're like, yeah, okay, we connect and we just like, you know, you, you often do you, we parted and just said, Hey, you know, we got to do something cool sometime together. And it was, it was just kind of left at that. Um, and then I was scheduled, (laughs) (laughs) I was scheduled to, uh, climb leukemia in the spring of 2020. Um, but then everything because of the pandemic got postponed. And so, um, things changed over the course of a couple of years in the planning and, um, the original partner couldn't join anymore. And Eva had, um, basically, I remember it was, it's actually my partner. He was like, you should ask Eva. (laughs) I was like, for sure. So I just sent Eva an email and said, you know, do you want to, do you want to climb Lucania in a a few months from now? It really wasn't that, I think it was October. Wow. Um, So uh, I was very nervous when I sent the email and then I got a really nice, very loud and clear. And so it's so cool. It just was like a yes, for sure. Um, and so we basically got to train because of the, you know, social distancing, et cetera. We only got to train together one day. We went for a, a little ice climbing outed, <laughs> outing, the two of us, um, and did, did a couple laps on some pretty vertical ice and did some minor problem solving there too. So right away, I think we knew it was going to be okay. Um, and then we didn't really meet each other again until we arrived in Whitehorse uh, with all our equipment. Wow. Um, and one of one of the wonderful things actually was that um, the the Yukon Territory was mandatorying they were making mandatory quarantine uh, even if you were arriving in from Canada. So we were uh, obliged to stay together in a tiny little Airbnb for two weeks before we started the project. And a lot of people were like, "Oh, poor you! You know, you're you're isolated for two weeks before you go on a big project." Uh, and it turned out to be and it, just like the silver lining in the whole thing. Um, our time together, it, it just, I think that was what solidified and set the tone for the whole climb. It gave us um, time to basically just prepare and get to know each other. So we set out a schedule where every day we had a topic. We either talked about food or we talked about crevasse rescue. And so it, it set this very calm tone um, to the project which really carried through. I think it was kind of one of the pivotal things that carried through on the climb um, for us to have just this, this everything. It just seemed like it didn't matter what presented itself. We were calm and we were able to just talk through it. And and there was never any um, hesitation. Like I didn't feel like I had to hide from Eva. If I was scared, I was able to share it. So we had a, just a, I mean, I echo what Eva said, the bond that we had um, is unmatched and, and I will cherish it forever too. And in, in future projects. I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't always work out that way when you, when you, no. when you go on, uh, you know, on a trip or a hike or some kind of expedition or something with a, with a stranger, you're really taking your chances. So, um, yeah, that's, that's so incredible. And of course, like you both had mountaineering experience going into it, right? Like, um, I know you, uh, Pascal, your, your, your kind of specialty, I guess, is like winter mountaineering specifically, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, my partner and I, we, we specialize in cold weather kind of, 
um, first or exploratory um, type of nature projects. So, uh, but you know, if, in terms of like background and and how how we got there, it, it's I, I, I have the same story as you. I started with backpacking, and and it was just weekend backpacks, and then they turned into you know a couple overnights, and then they were longer. My first long hike was on the west coast trail of Vancouver Island. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was the bug. Like for me, once it started being longer, um, longer backpack trips, it, I really realized that I loved that. And then it evolved to winter, winter backpacking trips. And then with winter came skiing and then came, wow, we need to get to the top of this mountain. And so it just evolved to winter camping. And then, um, you know, as you progress, you need to develop some skills. So we just gradually started to learn how to travel on glaciers and then started to learn how to set up repels because sometimes you would get on some technical terrain that you wanted to ski down something and you can't get down. So um, we just, it just evolved. I gradually just took courses and had some mentors and, um, and the technicality just gradually went up. That's, oh, that's so, you're, you're uh, inspiring me, (laughs) giving me so many ideas. And so how did, how did you come around to it, Eva? Well, um, I, I grew up, I'm originally from the States and I grew up on the East coast of, um, of the States in New York. And so we, what was accessible to us growing up was the ocean. And then, um, thankfully I'm so grateful, but my parents really made an effort to get us, get us up towards Vermont and to ski as often as we could. And so I'm really, really grateful for having had that exposure, but I didn't know anything about climbing until my late 20s. It wasn't on my radar at all. I um, I lived and worked in South Asia for a number of years, and um, a lot of that time was spent in Nepal. And so many people ask if I, you know, if I was there to climb. And at that point in my life, I was not. I um, I was doing international human rights work, and I was very social justice oriented and focused. And I was living in remote communities that by their very nature, you're, you're hiking every day because you're trying to access the fields that you have, you're harvesting rice from, or you're harvesting your crop from. And so I think I really became interested in mountain communities, but in living in mountain communities. And so it wasn't so much about going to these places for objectives, but I was really fascinated in in that the lifestyle that required that connection to the landscape and oftentimes challenging landscapes. And when I ultimately came back to North America in 2015, I um, was in Colorado for about a year and then moved up to Alaska. And that that was a, a um, quite a significant turning point for me. Um, I was living in Denali, which is in interior Alaska. So it's pretty harsh winters, fairly remote. And I, for the first time in my life, really had a lot of exposure to people that were, you know, doing longer trips and more, you know, winter camping um, explorations. And I had the opportunity to join some friends for a ski traverse in the Brooks Range. And so we did that um, ski drawing. So we were pulling sleds. We had dogs with us and we did a, a multi-day ski traverse and also hunted caribou. And, and so I just, like, like Pascal was saying, it was also a natural progression because it was like, okay, like I can, 
learn how to manage myself and my equipment when it's 40 below and be able to, you know, be in these environments in a very harmonious way and be able to navigate them and, um, and manage. And also, you know, through my whole life, photography has been, been my passion and my focus. And so all along the way, in my mind, as I started feeling this passion growing for being in these environments, it was like, how can I integrate this with photography? And how do I be able to combine these skills with storytelling? And, um, and so, yeah, similarly, it was like, okay, um, I'm, I also felt the most lit up by multi-day and longer projects and because you do have that more immersive experience. And so in my goal then started to become, how do I be able to handle myself in a safe and responsible way when it's glaciated terrain and when it is more technical and, you know, got introduced to climbing. And so all of these things all merge. I, I grew up skiing, but then kind of came back to it. And so it's been really amazing to be able to bring all of that together. And same, I, I, um, I ultimately came to Canada because in 2018, I did a three-month course with a guiding company called the Amnuska Mountain Adventures in Canmore. And I sought that out because I, I wanted to be able to have a, a good base of those more technical skills. And they offered that. And so that was a real launch pad for me. And it's been amazing because since then, I've been able to have work um, photographing skiing, steep skiing, ice climbing, rock climbing, mountaineering, um, alpine climbing. And, and so it's just opened up an entire world that now is becoming my, not only my personal passion, but um, it's also becoming my career. Yeah, I think it's so, so incredible when you can, um, yeah, incorporate something that you love doing into into all those different facets of of your life. Um, obviously, I'm biased though because I just quit my job to <laughs> I can freelance and make a podcast and stuff. So, <laughs> um, and so uh, this isn't something I expected, but like, is is skiing kind of an essential skill to to get into mountaineering? I would. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I mean. You can always choose objectives that don't require a ski approach. Um, that's for sure. But I think for mountaineering, because they're generally longer and more isolated um, approaches, and even alpinism, you, you generally will get there on skis. But you don't have to know. I mean, you'd actually be better served to be a really solid cross-country skier than you would be to be a downhill skier because it's it's really some um, shuffling more than it is turns. yeah. And that's the cool thing too, is, you know, there's such a scope of, of different kinds of objectives and ways to link terrain. So there's also a lot of options for technical ascents and then ski descents where you would need back, you know, good downhill technique mm -hmm. and, you know, where it's like, you know, climbing a steep ice climb in your ski boots with your, with your skis on your back and then be able to link terrain that way. Or you're just using it for the approach and for the to the ski and ski out, and then the the climb is something separate. So there's there's such a range in what you can do, but I mean when you think about like guide, if you look at like guiding streams, ski is also often quite separate. Like you can just be an alpine guide, you can and you can just be able to take clients or focus on on the climbing aspect 
and skiing can be completely separate. So I don't think it is a requirement, but it definitely is cool because it, it will just open up. It just opens up more options. But yeah, and I just like in terms of uh, when I mentioned progression and, and skills, you know, for me, it was the most important part was to to discover and learn if you're comfortable in prolonged outings outside and just, you know, like knowing how to manage the wilderness and, and your body and nutrition. Um, that's the key. And, and that's where it all starts. So you do that backpacking and, and for mountaineering, I, I was mountaineering for 20 years um, before Lucania and we certainly weren't pitching things out. I didn't know how to climb vertical ice or rock. Um, there are many mountaineering objectives that really are just an extension of, of backpacking, mm-hmm. but you bring in extra little additions. You know, you start bringing in crampons, you start bringing in crevasse and glacier travel. Um, and so you can choose objectives that have the technicality that you're ready for and, and just evolve from that. And I think that's the beauty and there's no end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's just like a, a galaxy of, <laughs> of like, diff- I don't know, skills to learn and objectives to, to try to meet and, and things like that. And so, you know, for somebody who lives, I know, um, well, Eva, you grew up on the East coast. Well, there are mountains on the East coast, I guess, like in the, in the Adirondacks and, um, mm-hmm. and Pascal, you, you lived in Ottawa for a really long time, although I guess that's also kind of close to <laughs> some mountains, but it's, it's funny because in, in terms of background, Eva and I, we kind of had the same <laughs> same trajectory yeah. because in Ottawa, my stomping grounds were the Adirondacks and the Green Mountains of Vermont and, and New Hampshire. And that's actually where I took my first mountaineering course. Oh. It's where I did my first ice climbing. Uh, and that's where I discovered it, really. And in terms of, you know, how can you live in a flat place yeah. like Ottawa <laughs> and, and be a mountaineer? Well, you can. I mean, it's, it's all about... Um, you know, if you have two weeks of holidays uh, a year, which is what I had, I would just focus those two weeks on some vertical, (laughs) I'd go to vertical places. Yeah, I guess, I mean, again, selfishly, this is something that I've been thinking about too. Like, how could I, and I'm sure lots of other people who who backpack in places like Ontario that that don't have mountains, um, have the same questions, you know, like, how can I extend this into something closer to mountaineering. So what are what are some pieces of advice or encouragement you would give to people who who are kind of trying to figure out or or might be kind of daunted by the the thought of developing their their interest from from just hiking in the woods of Ontario to you know summiting mountains. <laughs> One thing that's been really amazing to see over the last 2 years is I feel like there's a a much more expansive um, awareness and effort to address barriers to access and what that looks like. And I think, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, that can look different for, for different people, but it is intimidating. Like these sports are intimidating to approach. They're expensive, they're gear intensive, the gear is expensive. It requires time and what we call mileage to just get the experience to feel competent and comfortable on your own. And sometimes, yeah, I completely understand. It's like, where do you start? Like, if you don't have someone in your immediate circle, like, how do you say, like, I don't want to just trust someone random on the internet. Like, what do I do? Just like go look for a Facebook group. Like it's, it can be hard to just 
to feel like you're arbitrarily looking for partners who then you could be trusting your life with, or how do you know, if, you know, you want to feel like you are trusting the source of information that you're learning from. And, and it, that, so I think I, I really feel empathy there where it's like that, that overwhelming sense of just not knowing where to begin. But what's been really, really amazing, I think, is that there are more groups being formed to address those exact challenges and whether it's finding, being able to find mentors, being able to find like-minded people that are maybe in the same position so you can learn together or finding groups that are, are making things more available. And that's been really, really amazing to see. And then also just more funding opportunities and more programs for rental gear and for being able to, to have access to the things to just get started. And that's where I feel like for all its faults and flaws, social media is pretty amazing because there are just more and more wonderful groups being created and things like the Alpine Club of Canada that will run programs with people of different levels of experience. And so you can go out for a weekend trip with a group of people and, and feel like you can trust that mentorship and that guidance. I, I, you know, if it's something that's available to people financially or otherwise, like I really highly recommend taking courses and, and you don't have to jump right into a lead climbing course. Like there are dedicated like mountaineering courses that will just give you the basic skills for, um, being able to even, you know, a big, a big factor in this is assessing the terrain, right? So knowing what is the appropriate way, like, does this route actually require this kind of gear or these kinds of skills? And just even being able to assess what are the objectives that you're really interested in doing? How do you approach them? How do you prepare? What does that look like? And so, yeah, I mean, if you're interested in mountaineering specifically, there are a lot of guiding companies that offer weekend courses. There's more and more online things available as well. So I feel like we're just in this amazing time where information is more accessible than it's ever been. Yeah. You know, and, and I totally, um, what you said about online communities really resonates because even just for backpacking and, and backcountry camping in Ontario, like I've, I've met so many great people through like Ontario women back backcountry camping and, and things like that. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, like mountaineering seems like a very, I mean, it seems to me as a, as a lay person, like a very like male dominated sport. So have you found like a good community of women mountaineers that you're you're involved with as well or have you found that it's necessary to look for that or um yeah I I've moved around a lot in my life and that has in some ways it was challenging for me to find partners because you know I always I often especially when I first started climbing I felt very much on the outside like I I wasn't part of like a tight knit climbing community which I think exists and and I always kind of felt on the periphery and so sometimes I felt um uh it was hard and I also I'm sometimes I can be shy so I think it was hard for me at times to really like initiate some of those relationships but what has happened and it's really wonderful now to like we're putting roots down here in Golden and I've I've really been able to start fostering some really amazing relationships and friendships, many of many of which are with women. And it's really awesome that there are so many women in BC and in the Bow Valley 
and Alberta, because we're very much on the Alberta BC border here, where I feel like most of the people that I go out with are women. And, and I, and I really, I don't know if, if people feel like that where they are necessarily, but I feel really grateful that that's been my reality. And the people that I feel like have been most pivotal in me getting into the, this arena have been, have been women. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that sometimes that is the intimidating part, especially when it is uh, certain building certain skills that do require partners. I think sometimes that can be really challenging. And, and that's why like, I am really grateful to have a, a partner um, that like we enjoy doing these things together. And so that, that definitely does make it easier sometimes where it's like you have that person to go out and practice with or go out and do things with. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, finding partners is huge. And then just being able to just keep going and keep getting the experience and those baby steps. I think it has traditionally been a very male dominated space, um, especially the expedition space, because it is, you know, prolonged periods of cold and challenging conditions. Um, but I think that the, it just, um, also with social media, we often see things that are showing like the hardest, most extreme stuff. And I think it's also to important to remember that there are a lot of steps to get there. And sometimes it can feel intimidating, like, oh, if, well, I'm not, if I'm not doing like the highest, best, you know, all these superlatives that there's not value in it. And I, and I, I also think that that's starting to shift as well and just kind of honoring and, and seeing the value in, in highlighting things that might, maybe it's not like the hardest grade route, but it's still, you know, there's still a lot of personal growth and personal development and achievement in just breaking through those barriers and breaking through, um, breaking through our own limitations and, and our own sense of what's possible. So I think just remembering being careful to compare too much with external um, things that we see outside of ourselves and really just compare yourself to where you were. And so just keep going on your own trajectory and on your own, on your own path. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's really valuable because it is very easy, especially with social media now to, to look at what other people are doing and, and how far other people have come in a given period of time or something like that. Um, when really at the end of the day, it should be about the experience, I guess, for you personally and, and what it brings you and, 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 you know, what it brings to your life and, and all of those things. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so jumping, jumping back a little bit, um, you talked a, a little about the, um, not, I wouldn't say like financial barriers, but like there are, you know, if you want to take, if you want to take classes or if you want to have gear, that's going to keep you alive in like Arctic or subarctic conditions, that's, there's, there's definitely a cost associated with that. So what are some of the ways that people can fund their, their mountaineering? I don't know if you want to get into, to how you've both done it, or if you want to just sort of offer a general, yeah, some general advice, but how can people make this happen? I think one of the important things to note is, again, I really hung up on the baby steps and the, and the progression is when you start, 
Uh, it's not like you're going to buy everything you'll need to go climb Mount Lucania in one shot. Uh, you're going to spend years uh, doing smaller projects. And, and over time, you know, for one project, you might have to buy a harness. Mm. And so it's more palatable because it's a gradual, you know, you don't need crampons right away. You certainly don't need ice screws and, and, and technical ropes. And you can go for 10, 20 years of mountaineering without having to acquire every piece like that. So, you know, you've already started with backpacking. You, you have a backpack. You, you, you know, you have some of those outer layers that translate. And so I think um, one thing is to not get too overwhelmed with everything you have to buy at, for, like all at once because you can accumulate it over time. That's one thing for sure. And in terms of the bigger projects, like where we're at now, one of the things that really helps is there are a lot of grants um, available out there. So a big part of my time <laughs> is spent putting forward grant applications. So, you know, really scouring the the web for, you know, what's out there and and taking a crack at it, even though you think your project might not be like comparable to everybody else's. It's just take a crack at it and and, and apply um, it, they, they do come through. And then the other thing is sponsorship. I know it sounds perhaps unattainable for many, but, but there's a lot of like, you know, just product support. And if, if someone can help just, you know, with, with a couple pieces of equipment, it, it makes a big difference. So those are like small gradual approaches, uh, that, that really, that's how it, that's how it's helped for me. Yeah, I can imagine it kind of snowballing into into those opportunities if you if you, you know, stick with it for a long time and you start small and sort of work your way up and and kind of like parlayed into like do you feel like it's a it's a career for you at this point, Pascal? Like do you spend most of your time or or a lot of your time planning applying for grants and and things like that? I think it's transitioning. Yeah. Um, I, I was certainly in the corporate world uh, where I did everything in three weeks per year. <laughs> um, and I, I had a pretty, you know, a, a, a big 180 moment probably about five years ago where I did um, kind of disconnect a bit from, from that and decided to spend more time improve, you know, on in being in the mountains and just, so that I could start increasing maybe the technicality of some of the objectives. And just with that extra time, I was able to spend more time applying for grants and, and do all that. So um, is it, a, is it my career? I, I, <laughs> I don't know that I would say that yeah. I still do um, some consulting work on the side, but it's, I'm lucky because that marries well um, with, what I do because I'm basically consulting in the high risk industry. So a lot of the stuff that I experience or that I um, learn in the mountain environment, I can bring to the industrial environment as well. And it's the same way. It, it kind of just bridges both ways. So I, I guess, you know, I, I guess I'm in between right now. I yeah. kind of have to have. That's, I don't know. That's, it's still so cool though, that you, you know, even when you're not planning a, an expedition or, or, or applying for grants or whatever, you're still using the same, I guess, I don't know, parts of your brain or like risk assessment or that those skills and the experience mm -hmm. that you have, um, in your, in your, you know, daily career or your daily job or, or whatever. So um, I think that's really cool. And so, you know, with with all of the 
risks that (laughs) mountaineering comes with. Have either of you had a moment that you can kind of think back on where, I don't know, you were maybe facing a a really scary kind of, I don't know, stuck between a rock and a hard place and, and just sort of question whether, whether you wanted to do this. I mean, I know I've had moments like that backpacking in like mosquito season in the middle of July in Ontario. Do I even like this? Um, but yeah, have you ever had a moment where you thought like, I don't know if I can do this and then somehow got through it? I have a moment definitely in, in Peru, probably about 10 years ago on um, some a mountaineering um, vacation, I guess. <laughs> and it was rough. Uh, we, we, I don't know if we were in over our heads, but we certainly had tackled a lot. Um, and we were still pretty green and the altitude really affected us, uh, despite what we thought were the right things to do. And I got very sick. Um, uh, so it, it took a toll on me that it was only a, it was only a three week outing, um, but it it really knocked me down physically and mentally so much so that I had decided and I I clearly had told everybody I I was no I wasn't going to mountaineer anymore like it was just too hard on the body physically and mentally it's damaging it can be <laughs> if you're not careful so I had quit. Uh, but then, you know, over the years, I did go back to it. And I do manage, though, you know, what brought me to that point, I'm very aware of it. And I continue to try and learn and improve so that I, I don't bring myself to that point again. Yeah, so it was, it ended up being sort of a learning opportunity for you. And, and so there wasn't really a decisive moment when you said, okay, actually, no, I will do this. It was just something that you couldn't really stay away from. You just kept kind of like gravitating toward it. Yeah, I feel like it crept yeah. back in. Yeah. <laughs> And what about you, Eva? Yeah, I um, I think I am fairly in the mountains. I feel like I'm quite conservative with my decision making, mm-hmm. and I think that um, you know, it might be a blessing or a curse, but um, there are a lot of people that uh, what even if they're not people that I've known directly, it's like friends of friends that have unfortunately not survived accidents or situations and particularly in avalanches. And so I think I often, I often take pause and just look at the big picture and it's like, what is it worth? You know, and like certain, certain objectives or certain days, you know, it even came up the other day. There's a quite a steep, backcountry feature very close to us here that my partner really wanted to ski. And the night before I was really nervous about it. You know, I was really, really nervous and, and really hesitant. And I think, and we did ski it and it was great and the conditions were excellent. And I'm, I'm really happy with our decision-making and, and after I felt so great, cause it was one of those moments where it just does boost your confidence. Um, not in any type of like way of hubris or ego, but just, having those positive days just to reinforce your decision-making and reinforce being out there are, are really great. So I think actually, if anything, I put more pressure on myself to do more. I, I can be really critical on myself that I'm, that I'm not doing enough or like not advancing enough or not pushing it more. But I just, I feel like I'm, I'm often thinking about 
why? Why do we why do we engage with these certain risks and where is that line that I'm willing to to be? And I want to and just thinking about like, you know, what am I trying to get out of it and 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 what is what is necessary and like when when do I pull back? Um and so I think I haven't had a moment or experience yet where I've been like I'm I don't want to do this anymore. But I do feel like I'm constantly engaging with checking in with my own motivations of why I'm doing it at all, you know. And I, I, I think that the my most significant personal growth has come through these activities because they directly make you engage with those questions and engage in that space in a way that in my daily life nothing else does. Yeah or has in the same way because the, the, it matters, you know, like there are very real and direct consequences. And so I really appreciate that self-awareness that's come through it. And just to learn where are my own boundaries and where are my own blind spots. Um, So I look at it as even if I don't necessarily get to very elite levels in any of these um, disciplines, I'm just so grateful for the the practice that they engage me in and what what I get from that. So I don't think I will ever stop, but the scope of what I do will probably inevitably change over time. And as I think as I develop more skills, maybe I will be more willing to push the envelope in certain ways. And then as I as I age and as you know things change, um, that that I think what that looks like will will also change. But another beautiful thing about mountaineering in particular is I I see most of the mountaineers that I look up to and most of the alpinists that I look up to are the ones in their fifties and sixties because they have the combination of years of developing skill, but also the years of maturity and self awareness and um and sense of self and and. So that excites me where I think sometimes you look at certain sports and it's like, if you haven't pushed it in your twenties by, you know, it's like, you've kind of missed your window. And I think it's the opposite for being in the mountains. And so that excites me and inspires me where it feels like I'm just getting started. And so it feels like there's just so much that's possible. And if I just take care of my body and, and, and take care of my mind and like, there's just so much that can come from honing, honing, not only the physical skills, but but self-awareness as well. Yeah. It's just so exciting to think that like, this is something that, that, yeah, that you have decades to, to build confidence around and, and, and skills and and things like that. And I think you have to really want it (laughs) because it's, you know, I think you're putting yourself through a lot of discomfort. Um, same with, same with backpacking, same with, with, um, you know, a lot of like climbing and, and things like that. Like you're putting yourself through a lot of discomfort and also in a lot of risk, I guess. I mean, there are a lot of things you can do to mitigate risk, right? But like you said, like there are things that are outside of people's control, like avalanches and, and things mm-hmm. like that. And so Pascal, like, given all of that, <laughs> why, why do you why do you do it? What is, what does it bring for you? And, and I guess like, what do you draw inspiration from? My primary driver since the beginning, and it really hasn't changed is just that connection um, with nature. Just the, the colors that you see, especially in the winter or in really cold climates and the sounds that you hear, like if you're just lying in your tent 
and you have no vision. It's in the middle of the night. The world is is so alive when you're, you know, you know, you're, it's just so raw. It's everything is raw and there's an appeal to that. Um, it, it's really about observing that rawness, being part of it and, and even seeing it in yourself, right? Like, so of course it is a growth and you do learn and, and that is certainly part of why I do it for sure. Um, so it's really just that I, I think nothing brings me more alive than being in connection with the nature and the elements and, and those decisions that you have to make um, to be able to be in harmony in, in that, in that middle. <laughs> that in, so that's kind of, that doesn't go away and it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be Lucania and the third tallest mountain. Um, it, it, I get it. I get it. I mean, it, it does have to have a certain element of risk <laughs> and, and remoteness. Um, and that's part of it. It, it does. <laughs> I don't get the same feeling on an afternoon walk with my dog. <laughs> um, but, but it, it doesn't have to be, I think it comes from just allowing yourself the time to be in connection. And I think that's what made Lucania so special. Uh, we allowed for space and time and, and it allowed all these wonderful things to happen. And I think that's the difference. So I'm not sure I'll ever be an alpinist because I, I'm not drawn to the um, fast and light. <laughs> I am really drawn to the growth and the, the, the just the, the rawness of what you experience. Um, so can you tell me about your, your upcoming trip to Greenland? You're leaving in a, like this week, right? Yeah, I, I start, it's a little bit of a journey to get to Greenland. So, but we're leaving our, our place here on Friday. Oh. So <laughs> we're in the last minute crunch for sure. Um, it's, it's actually a, a multi-phase kind of project. So we're headed to the very Northwest of Greenland in a little village called Kanak. And we're going to acquire some dogs um, and uh, build up a team uh, to be able to um, do some dog mushing between different villages. So there's certainly a cultural aspect to it. Um, and then, and that's with my partner. Um, and, and so we'll be doing that for most of the polar night. So we'll be experiencing what it's like to be in Greenland with the sun doesn't come up till the middle of February. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> How do you and so mentally then, for oh, that? <laughs> I've never experienced that. So it is going to be interesting to see how that plays in, in you know, another learning. What does that do to, to your body and your soul? It'll be interesting to see. Um, but there there's a huge element of connection with the, the people there in Connacht. And it ties into kind of the, the second phase of the, the whole journey, which is, um, we're going to travel. So the reason we're getting the dogs is also to be able to travel further to the very northwest of Greenland, um, where my partner is going to drop us off. So a team of three um, on the edge of the Arctic Ocean. And we're going to basically don our skis and cross over into Canada uh, on Ellesmere Island. So we're we're going to then proceed to ski about 60 days. And it's about 1,200 kilometers um, along the coast of Ellesmere Island and then on to Baffin Island. So the, the whole 
um, purpose of the journey is that um, there's this, it's, it's kind of a, a historical and cultural journey because uh, there's a, a shaman from the mid 1800s. He was from Baffin Island in Canada, an Inuit, and he had a vision that there were other like-minded and similar uh, Inuit people further up north. And they basically went on a huge migration, uh, a, a group of about 50, and traveled through the Canadian high Arctic towards Northwest Greenland, where they in fact did find a community of people um, with the same traditions, a similar language. Um, so they were all the polar Inuit. And so his name was Kitlarswak. And um, the, the, their, their expedition, um, their migration lasted almost 10 years for them to do this. And they spent some time in Greenland. And then um, he ultimately, as he was aging, decided to go back home to Baffin Island. And on his return home, he passed away. So our journey is Kitlarswak returning home. So we're retracing his, uh, his what would have been his journey home. And it's also a connection between the polar Inuit of Northwest Greenland um, and the polar Inuit through the Canadian high Arctic. Um, so that's, 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 that's the project. Wow. Wow. That's so poignant. And have you, have you touched base? Like, have you connected with some Inuit communities up there? Like, will you be able to, to visit and, and meet anybody that, that you may have been in touch with while you're planning this? Yeah, so um, my partner spent five years of his life uh, in Greenland, and especially in this community that we're going to start at. So we're definitely going to be revisiting some of his old friends and and establishing um, connections there so that we can kind of maybe convey some of those um, things to the to their kind of sister villages as we go. On our journey in the Canadian High Arctic, we are only going to be in two communities. So we have a uh, stop in Greece Fjord for a resupply where we'll have food and fuel. And I've been in touch with the community there and they've just been so open and so exciting. It's just so welcoming. Like they're just like, you know, where can we store your food? Do you need a fridge? And we can't wait till you arrive. And, you know, just they all, we've had people reach out to us um, just through Facebook. Again, one of the beautiful sides of social media um, where you know, they grew, they have grown up with their elders just um, sharing this story of Kitlarswak migration and their roots. And so to hear that this is happening, they're really supportive and um, really excited. And, and so we're also partnering up with Siku, which is um, the, it's, a, it's kind of an app um, for the Inuit, by the Inuit, that basically shares any wildlife observations or ice conditions um, when they're out on the land. And so it's to help the exchange. Um, and they've reached out to us and want us to use their app to share the knowledge on the ice conditions because, I mean, obviously we're not going to, we know the world is changing and that those communities are among the hardest hit in terms of how fast it's affecting their life. And so any data they can have or information along our travels about ice conditions or wildlife encounters um, is super helpful. So we're really actually kind of honored that they've approached us to to share some of that knowledge on their platform. And so we're really excited about that. Yeah. And that app is called Siku? Yeah. S-I-K-U. S-I-K-U. Okay. That's that's so cool. Um, I'm so excited for you. And what about you, Eva? Um, I 
I am staying closer to home. Um, I, I am really, really grateful. Um, Arcteryx Alberta has brought me on as an ambassador for this year and a big, um, focus of my work with them is, is access. So, um, programs to address some of the barriers to access for marginalized communities, uh, for climbing and just being in the outdoors. And I am, you know, my wheelhouse really has been still photography and that has been my focus. And this year I'm, I'm, um, stepping my toe in the waters more of filmmaking. And so I have, um, ideas for two films that I'm hoping to get support for, for production. Um, and then my hope is that this spring, um, a significant portion of the spring will be dedicated to, to filming one of those. And, um, I can't say much about it right now, but, but, um, yeah, working with some climbers, um, and mentorship is a big component of it. Um, but really just trying to extrapolate out on some of the things that we were talking about actually in this conversation. And so, yeah, my hope for 2022 is just to, um, to really keep, to stay, stay, engaged in some of these efforts for access, inclusion, and equity in the outdoor space. Um, and it's really a, a thrill for me because so much of my, I feel like my previous life was really oriented to international human rights work and um, working in very marginalized communities. And I didn't think it was going to be something that I would be able to merge into this world that I'm in now. And so um, I'm very, very excited to be able to use some of my past lived experience and bring it into this space of, of climbing and mountaineering and, um, and see what we can create. Are there local groups that you're working with to, to address, I guess, some of these barriers to access? Yeah. So we had funding from the outer peace grant through Arcteryx. They had a really wonderful initiative in 2021 um, and they had some funding opportunities for addressing some of those barriers to access to the outdoors and understanding, you know, access to outside as a human right. And and so we, um, myself and two other friends, we applied for this grant and we got it. And so we were able to run a program in the fall uh, with a group of Indigenous women. And so we were able to do two events in 2021 with support from Arcteryx Alberta um, that was really about just exposure. And so we were able to work with women from Siksika Nation and Guyana Nation, which are reserves um, just outside of Calgary, uh, to introduce them to climbing. And our hope is to be able to make those programs also more sustainable and not just say, hey, yeah, here's this, like, try this thing. And we and you like it and then be like best of luck in continuing with it. But like, what is the next step and how to make that more sustainable? So does it mean being able to offer gear that they can keep? Does it mean subsidizing or helping support memberships to climbing gyms that are closer to them or be able to offer some follow-up and ongoing programs just to help continue that, that process of exposure? Um, so that was really wonder, a really, really great start. So I'm working with some formed groups, but then also just individuals from those communities. And so we're, um, we're organizing more, more programs in 2022. And also there's another wonderful, uh, organization called color the trails and they have BC and Alberta chapters, and they've been very mobilized and really active in creating events, um, that, 
creates a space for for members of the BIPOC community to try all different things. So ice climbing, skiing, um, mountain biking, indoor rock climbing, outdoor rock climbing. So it's been really amazing. And I've been collaborating with them um, in a few different capacities. So they're definitely um, an organization to check out for sure. That's that's really incredible. And yeah, uh, yeah, the out- outdoor uh, community presents as very <laughs> homogenous <laughs> in North America. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this was something that came up for us before Lucania, you know, where some people, you know, it was the first all female ascent and, and some people gave us a little pushback of like, is it necessary? Do you have to say that? Like, aren't we past it? But I think, you know, and what we, and we talked about it a lot together and kind of what we arrived at was representation matters. And if it's something that you feel like isn't important, then it's just because it's not impacting you, but it doesn't mean that it's not significant to others. And I think it is important for people to see themselves in the representation that we see and that's promoted. And that goes far beyond just the tokenism of having more diversity in branding in, um, but an actual real experiences and being able to find, to see people that you can identify with and connect with um, doing the things that you aspire to do. I think it makes a huge, huge difference. And, and I, and I feel an increasing responsibility in just being someone that wants to create meaningful imagery and have that out in the world. You know, it's like the stories that we see told are the ones that tell us whose stories matter and whose stories are important. And you see it in the film industry where most things are directed by men and that has been the historic precedent. And so stories have not been told for women, by women. And and so the narratives are shifted and the perceptions are shifted and what who we're told to be and who we're told, um, you know, the the way we're encouraged to be to 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 deserve respect or to deserve a sense of worth and and so it's so exciting that I feel like that's really being turned on its head and and we're really in this cultural moment to kind of take some of that and to to tell stories differently and to tell our own stories and I really want to just to dive into that very fully. Before we uh, before we go, before we sign off, was there anything else that either of you wanted to say or or touch on that that I didn't get around to or that just hasn't come up yet? No pressure. <laughs> I just have one, maybe I a little piece of advice that I've seen in myself and I see in a lot of people around me uh, in terms of pursuing some of these um, you know adventures or journeys. Uh, I feel like a lot of people put barriers on themselves and, and they're never ready and they don't, they didn't take the course on this or they haven't done enough of this or they didn't train hard enough for that. And so they never take, they never take that plunge. And, and, and my, all I can say is you'll never be ready enough yeah. <laughs> and you have to just trust that you, I'm not saying like go and, and try and climb something, you know, you have no idea how to do, but most of the time, if you're dreaming up um, some kind of adventure, 
you are ready and 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 you should just try and and do it <laughs> and just be ready to notice you know just be ready to turn around and that's my approach in a lot of things like if if i can't do this i'll just turn around <laughs> yeah like it's okay to make an attempt at something and not not nail it the first time absolutely yeah and what about you eva was there anything else that you wanted to to add or end on again no pressure <laughs> It's just being recorded for an audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, well, I was just thinking when Pascal was saying before about the time and the feeling of connection. Um, again, I think we know oftentimes it's like these high octane objectives that are really glorified. And just, I think, you know, something that I have felt when I've had the opportunity to do more prolonged trips, Lucania being the main one, um, just the how, how primal it feels and how natural it feels. And there's a lot of it that feels like, to me, it feels like this is what we're meant to do. Like this is this, it feels like the most natural thing in the world um, to be on an expedition to me. And um and I think it it just it brings me in tune with sort of this natural state. And it I find it's a, such a it is such a privilege to have those opportunities um, for extended periods of time to not be bombarded with a lot of the stimulation that we receive on a daily basis and peel back those layers and see what emerges in that spaciousness. Um, so I just I I think it's one of the most basic and uh, purest ways ways to be, and you know, um, oftentimes the stories that we hear are like the near misses or the close calls, or or people are asking like what those were, but honestly, like the majority of it is just kind of this slow grind and like this slow quiet process of one foot in front of the other, and. And I think that it's actually so profound. It's like, you know, there's so much immensity in these moments that seem unimportant or un not exceptional, but actually I think that's kind of where the, so much of the beauty and the magic is. So I guess if, if this is geared towards, or if you're thinking about a message for people that are getting started or who are curious I think it's also like embracing the those small moments, you know, and, and embracing just the whole process, because I, I think that's what I really love about it. It's just the all of it, the whole the whole spectrum of what goes into into these projects. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much you can find so much gratification, I guess, in just like satisfying basic requirements of living, like walking, eating, setting up your shelter, taking care of all of those basic things and and stripping it all down and not worrying about like not really bringing the ego into it and, and all of that. Yeah, I think it frees us from this existential crisis. I think a lot of us are like searching for a sense of meaning. I think especially with moving through the pandemic, it's um, you can see that there's a lot of struggle and just a lot of deep questioning of just, you know, why do we focus on the things that we focus on? And, and so I think that there's just something so, um, so satisfying when your day is oriented around creating a safe shelter and moving between two places and 
you know, taking care of each other. Um, and that's how our indigenous communities have and and some still do operate and live. And I'm I'm so excited for Pascal and I just I'm yeah, I think that, you know, just extended periods of time when you've stripped away all everything else, I mean, that is that is the privilege. And and so yeah, you know, there's a lot of logistics involved in getting the gear and setting it up, but like, but once you're in it, I mean that that is something that I hope people can find the time or or make the time to do um, or find value in because I feel like the more <laughs> the more people can touch those experiences, I feel like all of us will be able to treat each other better. And <laughs> I think that it would really do so much for just us as a collective community. Yeah, that's that's what I hope too. <laughs> <laughs> It's been really awesome having you both in my ears and on my screen this morning. <laughs> I'm so grateful that you both made time to to be on the show with me and uh, and so excited for for everything that you're doing and and have been doing. And yeah, just thank you so much for for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And best of luck with with everything you're launching. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, Listeners, if you liked what you heard today, uh, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the... (laughs) That's my cat. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Catch Me Outside podcast on Instagram for photos of the show's guests on their adventures. Cheers!